Hey family, welcome to the Kinship Collective Podcast. This is episode 73 of Ending Otherness and Cultivating Kinship. My name is Mark and I will do my best to not sound like a game show host. I'm thrilled that you choose to listen, thrilled that you're on this journey with us where we learn from one another's stories and remind each other that there is such a wide imagination of scripture in the Christian tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition that we come from, and we can hear those different perspectives and it can open up our imagination. Let me start with a question that kind of comes out of our conversation today. Does Christianity still feel like home to you? Here's another question. Are you finding it difficult to integrate the spaces in your identities, the intersectional spaces in the borderlands of your life? You come to the right place if you resonate with those questions or those questions pique your interest at all. Today, we have a conversation with Patty Crowick. She's the author of Becoming Kin, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. She shared about her faith journey from evangelical Christian to what she would say now is a Anishinaabe of faith. And we talk about how deeply colonization blinds us to our past and ties our hands from creating the future and even imagining it. Then we talk about, we reimagine Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 25. Patty helped me to see this in a way I've never seen it before. And I think that's the beauty of being able to see it through one another's eyes. And I'm really grateful that you get to hear it and get to participate in the scripture that way. Know that your imagination matters. The way you see the story matters. You know, one of the questions that came out of that conversation was, what if we were always meant to leave the garden? And what if God's tone was different? different. It reminds me of an old conversation I had with a friend and they always felt like God's voice was that kind of angry, vengeful, very rule following kind of tone. And that kind of comes up in this conversation. If that's the tone you've kind of heard God or scripture through, man, I think this conversation will really speak to that. Before we get into the conversation, make a quick announcement of how you can help us with like 30 seconds. Would you give us a quick rate and review on whatever platform you listen to? It helps us to make space for those who need to join a conversation exactly like this. Kind of helps the algorithm find people like you interested in faith and how can we evolve and grow and mature together and have conversations that celebrate one another, that help us to be intentional with what's happening in the world and decolonizing and reconstructing faith in a way that's meaningful and helpful. That would be super helpful. Also, you could join our email newsletter. You can connect with us there, stay informed about what's happening with us. You can sign up at www.thekinshipcollective.org. That makes me smile and laugh because <laughs> anytime you guys say www. or the person who does must be a grandfather. Just kidding, super old. So at thekinshipcollective.org, you signed up for our newsletter. Okay, that's all the stuff. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Patty Crawick. 
I am so grateful for today, the opportunity to connect with an incredible storyteller, an incredible reminder. Our sister today, she comes to us from the, <laughs> I'm reading these different things and my, my app is up and down and all around, <laughs> but I think today what feels really important, our sister is an Anishinaabe and Ukrainian writer from the Laksol First Nation. She's the co-host of the Medicine for the Resistance podcast, co-founder of the Nikanagana Foundation, which collects funds and disperses them to indigenous people and organizations. Her work has been published in a variety of print and media outlets, including Sojourners, Religion News Network, Rampant Magazine, and NPR. She is active with the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center and the Strong Water Singers, and she lives on Twitter. My sisters and brothers, would you welcome Patty Crawwick to the conversation. Patty, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Patty, when I originally reached out to you, I heard you on the Protagonistas podcast, and I I heard about your book, Becoming Kin, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future. Your book is incredible, and I want to get into that in just a moment, but I, I want to know more about who you are before we get into some of the ways that you've uh, collected stories and are reminding us, helping us unforget. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fair. <laughs> so what do you want to know? <laughs> so Patty, <laughs> yeah, Patty, I, I, so I think very specifically, you have, and I want to say I can, I can call it interesting and I can call it complicated and it might be, that is from where I sit, that's how I perceive it. Uh, relationship to the Christian tradition. You grew up to my understanding in a kind of evangelical home. Yes. And you are reintroduced and kind of reintegrated into your indigenous roots later on in young adulthood. And it seemed like you integrated those uh, ways of being for a while and you figured out how, how to exist in uh, both worlds. And for me, the integration of that, the ways that, I guess for me, flourishing is a, is a fruit of how you do that. You can tell me if you flourished or not. I'm curious about how did you reconcile Christian faith and Anishinaabe identity? And then we could talk about maybe where you are now with it. Yeah. So, um, you think go back to creation stories, go back to the very beginning. Yeah. So I was raised. So my mom had mm-hmm. gone up to the lax soul for the area of the lax soul first nation. That was where she was teaching. That's where she met my father. And then that relationship went sideways and she moved back home. So her family, German, Ukrainian originally fled Stalin. Then post-war Germany came wound up in the Niagara region of Southern Ontario. And that's where I was raised. So Mm -hmm. I was raised with my mom's family in Southern Mm -hmm. Ontario, long way from my dad. I actually start my book 
for exactly the reasons that you're talking about with kind of a fairly detailed family history of, you know, a genealogy of who my parents are on both sides. Mm -hmm. Because that's important mm -hmm. context to how I see the world and how I live in the world and how people engage with my book. I don't want them to get the impression that, you know, I grew up surrounded by native people and I'm bringing them this kind of pure indigenous perspective on everything. Cause I'm not, I'm bringing my perspective, mm -hmm. which I have had to integrate, mm -hmm. as you say, over time. So, yeah. So, you know, from about nine years onwards, we were going, you know, to evangelical church and I like specify evangelical because that's a very particular way of reading and understanding what the text is saying and, you know, kind of the consequences of how you understand those stories. But when I found my father as an adult and I had always known I was native, I had the photo albums, I was the brown kid in the white family. Other people expected me to be Ojibwe, but I didn't have any Ojibwe people around me mm. to teach me how to meet their expectations. Uh, you know, like I always say, I learned about it from mm. the same way everybody else did by watching Little House on the Prairie and Bonanza. Which kind of dates me a little bit, but, <laughs> but that's that's how I was growing up. <laughs> so, as an you know, you know, so as I got to know myself, my father's side of the family, and then the local indigenous community, that started to really shift how I heard the stories in the Bible. Because suddenly we always read mm. ourselves into the text, right? Like we always read ourselves into those stories and we see ourselves, you know, as David fighting Goliath or, you know, you know, Samson being tempted by Delilah, right? Like these are always like the ways we do this. Mm. It just whenever, anytime we read anything, that's what we do, right? We identify with one of the characters. Mm -hmm. And as I was connecting with, my father's side of the family and kind of developing that perspective on what it meant to be Ojibwe an Ojibwe person living in Canada. And I started to see the consequences of the church and the Canadian government on how indigenous people were seen and able to live. I started seeing, I got very uncomfortable, particularly with the Exodus story. It started sounding like a story of genocide and like wait a minute we're the Can I'm the Canaanites <laughs> you know, like, so what are you doing and and that started mm -hmm. me on this kind of I don't know like really difficult and it took years decades um, way of kind of looking at these mm -hmm. is, are there other ways that we can read these stories are there other ways that we can understand and look at ourselves in these stories and then hearing Anishinaabe stories, how we understand creation to have happened, how we understand how to live in the world. You know, we have our own historical stories and, and things that, you know, maybe cautionary tales or, you, you know, just stories, and, you know, kind of like the Bible is full of stories and they teach us things about how to be human. And I started to see that what was in the Anishinaabe stories mm. matched in a lot of ways what I was hearing from Jewish thinkers about these mm -hmm. stories more closely than how they matched the evangelical perspectives I had been given. And so that's kind mm -hmm. of, for me, where that 
integration came from was I don't have to completely turn my back on those stories or turn my back on that community because that's a community that also claims me that I have a deep relationship with, but how can I engage with it differently Mm. so that it stops Mm -hmm. being so harmful so that, you know, kind of bring forth the, I don't know what's the the poet says, you know, the better angels of our nature. I don't know if that's a poet or a singer, but sometimes overlap, right. You you know, bring forth Mm -hmm. kind of the promise of those stories rather than the oppression of those stories. And so for me, that's kind of how I integrate it. Mm -hmm. And my whole sub stack is I read this book and this book, what do they say to each other? You know, what kind of what comes out, what comes out of when Mm -hmm. we put these ideas together. And so for me, integrating my Christian upbringing with what I'm learning and have learned from the Anishinaabe community. How do I put these things together in a way that, in a way that builds something good? Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, borderlands living in the borderlands. And so I find that's where I find myself Mm, is in mm -hmm. the borderlands rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than, you Mm -hmm. know, fully in, I don't want to say fully in one community or the other, because I would say that I am fully indigenous, that I'm fully Anishinaabe, that that's, if we have to pick sides, that's the side I've chosen. (laughs) But because I wasn't raised in Mm -hmm. that community, in this, you know, in the center, my existence is at the edges and at that late in those layered relationships. And I think that's an okay place to be. I struggled a lot. With being okay with that, with feeling I had to be fully one or fully the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's there's too many mm-hmm. of us living in those margins. And then I came across um, <laughs> Aaron Mills. And I, I cite him in the book, actually. He wrote his dissertation on, Anish, on Anishinaabe governance. And it sounds like super dry and boring, but it's actually really interesting. And he talks about these layered relationships. Mm. And when I came across that, it felt so liberating. It felt like, okay, it's okay that I can live in these layered relationships, that I can live in the borderlands. And that's actually kind of my my next piece of writing that I'm working on is how how do we live in these borderlands in good generative ways? Mm. You know, what happens when we do that? Um, mm. So for me, that's how I integrate it is being comfortable in the borderlands and, you know, and how did these stories inform each other? How do we, things are changing. Things are changing so fast, right? Um, In our world. And how do we build something better? How do we build something that doesn't leave people behind? Like that's, that's my whole thing right now. How, how do we build something? I'm not interested in tearing stuff down. I think it's going to implode all by itself. It doesn't mm-hmm. need any help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's yeah. important to me is what are yeah. we building? What are we building? Because that's what's going to be left when whatever happens, happens. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's my evangelical apocalyptic mm-hmm. upbringing. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I think some, something's going on. I don't think anybody <laughs> can deny that. Something's going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I... um you know, when you started sharing about the borderlands and what it means to be uh, in that in-between space, it makes me think of uh, Dr. Alma Petty, uh, Saragossa Petty, who wrote a book called Chingona, and she talks about her story and what it felt like, very similar uh, to, you know, have this strong Mexican heritage and to grow up in East Los Angeles and 
all of the way, but she talks about what it means to be a coyote. And I think when you were sharing about what it feels like to not be at the center, so sometimes for me, that has felt like a disadvantage. I grew up, my father is black and my mother is German English. And I grew up in, in that tension of like, I am not this and I am not that. And these people don't accept me as this because I'm not black enough for black folks and I'm not white enough for white folks. And I don't know where my place is. But for me, when you were sharing, as you were talking about, like I wasn't in the center, it just made me think about when you talk about generative practices, the people in the margins and the people who have learned to exist in uh, Nepalta or the borderlands or uh, in the in-between, I think that there is, there's, there's generative practices we learn from being there that help people. As you're saying, like, something's happening. For me, it feels like one of the things that feels true about what's happening is that the stories and, and maybe this gets us into the book or we're almost there the <laughs> stories that we thought were generative or we thought were creating um, a flourishing way of being in the world they are coming they're, they're they're being a little bit dismantled and whether that is a history of a people or a nation or whether that is a, a history of a faith some of it the ways that it was taught to us i feel like is becoming dismantled and people who have who've who've lived in the in between i think have some tools to navigate that differently yes when you never really had like a a a, a not a, a true north so to speak but you just never existed fully in one thing so you never could fully put weight on one aspect of identity or one thing I don't know if that makes sense. Yes. Um, because, and, and I don't want to anybody to think I'm devaluing the people at this, at, at, at these centers because they hold really important yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. They hold really important knowledge and really, and, you know, and, and they have an important connection to history that I, I don't want people to think I'm diminishing. What I'm doing is I'm acknowledging that that's not my place, mm. that that's not where I was raised. That's yeah. not, and so there will be memories and context that I will never have because that's not where I, that's not where I was raised, but that doesn't diminish those of us who exist in the borders either, because those of us who exist in the borders, like you said, we have, we have other tools that are important, that are necessary, you know, to bring forward. Like in my book, I talk often about, you know, the seven fires, you know, the eight fires, and that, you know, when the fire comes through, that's what you've mm -hmm. got. You've got a borderland, you know, and, and what and the borderlands can be, if prepared properly, the fire, you know, the woodlands and the grasslands and the places where the fire comes through are places of extreme growth and generative opportunity there. That's where the fireweed and the blueberries come, right? <laughs> so it's not about, you know, the mm. centers are better and, you know, these hard, these binaries and borders it's finding the value in all of those things and how all of these things work together. And, you know, because the borders and the binaries, that's colonization that says we have to be this or that. 
you know, that we have to be in or out or, you know, Christian mm-hmm. or non-Christian or, you know, you know, creating these, these separations between us, mm-hmm. you know, and, and mm-hmm. those all take violence to maintain, right? If you're going to any, any kind of border, whether it's a social mm-hmm. border or a, you know, or a state border that takes violence to maintain. And those of us who live in those mm-hmm. borderlands feel it, that violence gets written on, on our bodies and in our lives. So we need to, and, and I really like that. I think, I think I know the author that you're talking about. Um, I wouldn't be pronouncing her name correctly. Um, but yeah, she's written extensively about, about borderlands and, you know, her poetry is like gorgeous. And I think I found her through um, Walter Mignolo's work. Um, but yeah, I, mm. I just, I, I find, I think I know who exactly, I think I know who you're talking about, but yeah, I, I have, appreciated her work so much mm-hmm. so I, I really appreciate you saying that too because I think that sometimes when you have to fight to create an identity in a borderland and it seems like you're communicating or advocating um, and then sometimes that can be taken as if it's belittling or disrespecting any other identity that's not that one which mm-hmm. is <laughs> Which is not the kind of solidarity that you're talking about mm-hmm. or that we are talking about. I want to go back to what you said about finding, oh man, it makes me smile, <laughs> finding a Jewish um, imagination for stories, the midrash, the ways that we wrestle with with the story and can think about it from different perspectives, a story that we may have heard uh, and maybe that that story has been told to us a certain way for so long. Mm-hmm. If you were to try to um, identify yourself or to describe the spirituality that is generative for you right now, how would you describe that? Hmm, that's a really good question because. I would have thought of myself as Christian up until fairly recently, mm-hmm. but that no longer feels like home for me just because there's so much baggage associated with that term now that I don't want associated with me. But on the yeah. other hand, I'm not rejecting it either. I heard, I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard the podcast straight white American Jesus with Brad Bradley Onishi. Oh, <laughs> I love it. It's I, I came across okay, uh-huh. it. I, I was listening to another podcast and he was being interviewed on it. And he describes himself as a secular person of faith. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that I would call myself secular either. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to go with an Anishinaabe person of faith. Because I see value, like I'm not mm-hmm. turning my back on the Christian church or the Christian story or this, the, the scriptures or any of those things, because I see value in those stories. You know, I see them a, as important and I see the Christian community a, as important and an important place of belonging. And I think like for me, I had my Anishinaabe community to go to when I was really struggling with whether or not mm-hmm. I still had a home in the church, but a lot of people don't have another community to go to. 
they don't have another place they can go. They would just, they, they would lose everything and everyone. And so I'm very interested in, in building relationship with those people, with that part of the borderland, because I think there's a lot of potential in the Christian narrative and in the Christian church that it is not meeting because it's too mm-hmm. concerned with boundaries and in and out and, you know, who's real and who's not and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't even think the text really bears that out. So, yeah. So I have found a lot of value listening to Jewish thinkers, um, you, you know, in, in particular, mm-hmm. because those are they're largely Jewish texts. So, mm-hmm. and yep. their willingness to challenge the text. Like when I talked about the one text, um, you know, the, the genocide uh, uh, of entering Canaan and mm-hmm. the Jewish people that, that I talk with are mm-hmm. like, yeah, we, that's, that was messed up. Like, why did we, you know, like, like they don't fully accept it as yes, that happened and that made it okay. You know, God said that we could kill all these people. And so it was okay that we did mm-hmm. it. They said, that was a really messed up way to tell that story. Mm-hmm. So how do we, you know, and how, how mm-hmm. do we understand that in a different way? You know, how do we understand the warnings mm-hmm. of that story rather than the heroism of it? How do we understand mm-hmm. the warnings of it to us today mm-hmm. as, you know, with what's happening, mm-hmm. you, you know, in Israel right now? You know, so they're really wrestling with those stories rather than, oh, you know, Abraham did this and that therefore that must be the right thing to do. They're like, no, wow, that was really messed up. We need to think about that differently. <laughs> you know, and so that's that Jewish imagination, the Midrash and the other mm-hmm you know, the other ways of thinking about those stories. And I have found that, I don't know, I feel like it just unlocks a lot of power in those stories that has, that was diminished in my experience of them. So I would like to be part Mm -hmm. of that conversation in unlocking the power of those stories. (laughs) That's incredible. I, I I feel similar. I think that's what we're uh, doing here with the kinship collective Mm -hmm. and the ways that we can open it up to me it feels like one of the challenges with evangelical christianity i would call it like western or american christianity Mm -hmm. like i started it started it fall apart for me and i was like this doesn't feel like it just didn't feel true or authentic generative to me I was taking a a history class in seminary and I just was like, this, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Um, I think about, um, Christina, Dr. Christina Cleveland. I don't know if you heard of her or Mm -hmm. read her book. Um, God is a black woman, but she talks about, um, uh, angry white male God Mm. and, and her journey of growing up in evangelical kind of Christianity but that started to like, I think that idea is really harmful. It is degenerative. It is uh, colonizing. It's been used to colonize. And really, I think it really kind of gets to, there's two things that stand out for me that that bring your book into the conversation. The first thing is that if there's a truth, um, if there's just this single truth and, and, and um, the, the narrative, the ways that it's told or that like when the Bible is so like is treated like a rule book or like this, like it's not treated as the actual thing that it is, mm-hmm. this kind of ancient 
library. It's very diverse, very ancient, very ambiguous at certain points. And we're trying to treat it like it is a, I don't even know, like a history book, a roadmap to success, a roadmap to flourishing or all these different things, roadmap to heaven, Mm -hmm. which gets into, again, another idea from your book. That's just, it's really hard. You can't even get in conversation with it because you've never been presented as it is something that can have a conversation. This is the truth and you surrender to it or you submit to it and that is final. Mm -hmm. And that's not what it is. And I think what you're talking about is that invitation to, well, let's have a conversation about that. Oh yeah, they they did say that. That was a very unique that was a very particular time in human history when it was written. That was a very uh, particular time in the history of those people when they wrote that in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, to me, I'm, I think about the ways. How does it serve a people? Back to what you said and that quote that we mentioned earlier about history, the the telling of a story that creates a sense of community or that's told in a certain way serves a purpose in a moment. Mm -hmm. So you move out of slavery and you become a people. I think you wrote about this and you talked about Leviticus and the ways that um, it it created a people, a kind of people or governing a governance. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, there's a, there's a sense of like, and it's not good. It can't, it's almost like colonizing again. You were colonized. You have been a slave for generations in these people. Now you go out. You become a people. You wander for a while. Your God, from my reading, is trying to help you become like God. So you will be a generous people. While they have oppressed the foreigner, you will make space and generosity for the foreigner. While you never knew what rest is, here you will have rest. You talk about Jubilee in your book, which I love. But then there's this idea of, and I don't think, again, I think it's rooted in colonizing and colonization, which is like, oh, the epitome of like becoming a nation and becoming a people is maybe is when we have the power to kind of do what we want to another people. Mm-hmm. And while I look at it and say, that's really harmful, that doesn't reflect the God that liberated you. It also still, I could see a people feeling like, oh, we can do this now. And when I say that out loud, it makes me think of what's happening right now in the world. Mm -hmm. You know what? Maybe in 48, we couldn't do this. And maybe in the 70s, we couldn't do this, but we will not. We, and again, to me, What's happening in Israel with Palestine right now is that same kind of manifest destiny. It's it's the same thing, which to me brings us into the book and that that some of the stories that you're telling in your book, which are separate from that. <laughs> yeah, no, but you're right. It's it's manifest. How destiny. is there any way you want to? Re- yeah, it's manifest destiny. It's the doctrine of discovery. It's you know a land without people for a people without a land. Mm-hmm. Right, all of those things. That because I talk a lot about the doctrine of discovery in the book because like the first five it was meant to be like half and half like yep. half history and then half what do we do now and there was just like so much history to go through that uh-huh. it wound up being like two thirds history and one third what yes. do we do now uh, which I also think mm-hmm. is okay because I also don't mm-hmm. want to give too many too, people too many answers because the answers that might make sense to me yeah may not make sense to a community in Arizona right or in British Columbia like. They're going to have to figure mm-hmm. it out for themselves. So 
I talk a lot about the doctrine of discovery mm-hmm. because it's not this ancient document that, you know, was written down in the 15th century. It's like 400 years of papal bulls and legal precedents and, and things that in a nutshell really said that if you come to a land and the people aren't Christians, then it's all yours. It's free for the taking the people, the land, the things that come from the land. It's all, it's all yours. And it, it, it described the land as empty, but that didn't mean that it didn't, that there weren't people there. They knew that there were people there just like, you know, when you're talking about Israel and Palestine, a land without a people for a people without a land didn't mean there wasn't anybody living in Palestine. Didn't mean there was anybody living in the Americas. Or yeah. It just meant that we didn't matter. It just meant that we had no authority yeah. over that place. And so Europe could send all of the people that they didn't want, you know, the people that they didn't want on their own shores. Like Australia was, <laughs> a, you know, was a great big penal colony. Mm. Um, so, you know, so they could do all of that and take all of the land and make treaties that they had no intention of keeping. And, you know, they could, they could do all of that stuff because the church gave them the the authority to do it. And the church took a text Mm -hmm. that was written during the Babylonian captivity. And honestly, like that blew my mind when I found out that the story of the Exodus was actually written during <laughs> the Babylonian captivity because I was like, okay, actually that makes more sense mm-hmm. now. Now I understand why they would imagine their history. They would, they would, because uh, we do that, right? We imagine like some great and glorious past that justifies our existence in the present. Mm-hmm. And so of course they would take what happened to them and imagine some glorious past. And then, well, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong that this all got taken away from us? And I think here in the Americas, indigenous people, we did that too. You know, the plagues came and they decimated mm. at by some counts, 90% of the indigenous population of the Americas. Like that's a lot of people. That's a lot. It actually cooled the planet. Mm. Right? Like that's how many people died. And not all at once, but in a short period of time. Yeesh. Yeah, like at the, you know, like, so of course we were traumatized and wondering, what the hell did we do? We thought we were doing everything right. We thought we were living in a good way. What did we do? Mm-hmm. Victims do that all the time. I worked for four years with victims of sexual mm. assault and then 16 years in social work, working with other victims of other forms of abuse. And victims do that all the time. What did I do? What did I do? Because we want some form of mm. control. We want to think that we could have done something differently. Mm. And, you know, we don't want to feel like we were completely helpless. And then that's where the church comes in, comes into our traumatized communities and says, oh, we can tell you what you did wrong. <laughs> we can tell you what you did wrong. And we can tell you how to live right so that this never happens to you again. Except that, you know, with residential schools, mm-hmm. boarding schools in the U.S., I mean, it didn't work out that way anyway. We all converted and we still didn't get accepted. So, I mean, like we know, you know, for, you know that mm-hmm. for black people, too, you get emancipated, but you still don't get accepted. The lot, you know, they could emancipate you, but then they had to bring in Jim Crow and sundown towns and all of that other stuff because they no longer had the institution of slavery mm-hmm. available to control black people. So they had to bring in other things. 
so that makes the America makes these promises. Mm-hmm. The church makes these promises that it has no intention of to keep. And so part of what I want to do is hold mm. these governments and these churches accountable. Like that's actually for me where this, where the book came from was I wanted to know how did things go so badly wrong? And the more I followed those threads mm-hmm. back, I wound up following them like, like Christian and church complicity all the way back beyond 1492. Right. Like it, it goes, it, it, the rock mm-hmm. goes pretty deep. <laughs> so I'm not interested in rehabbing the church, <laughs> um, um, but I am interested in a lot of the communities that keep, because I think, I think there is truth in those stories. I think there is truth in those communities. And the fact mm-hmm. that over 2000 years, Christian communities continue getting up and trying again outside of the institute, you know, the institutional churches, Christian community keeps trying and trying. To me, that speaks to something really powerful in the stories mm-hmm. because they keep trying. Like I know Christians who are doing mm-hmm. really good work in abolition and decolonizing, and they're doing really good work and they're driven by the text and by their faith to mm-hmm. do that good work. So I'm very yeah. interested and, and yeah. they're all working at the margins. Mm-hmm. None of them are, none of them are working from the center. They're not working from the metropole from the center of the institutional church. Mm. They're all working from the borderlands. And so I really like the borderlands mm-hmm. now. I have, I am fully invested in these bordering communities and how different they are because it depends on what you're bordering from and into, right? So it's just, I, fu- I no longer worry mm-hmm. about not being in the center anymore. It's like, you know what? These borders are just such wonderful places to exist in. Mm. You know, Patty, (laughs) it's making me smile hearing you say that. I'm going to be honest about for me when you say that, the things that come up for me is to be raised in the places that I was raised or to have had the experiences that I've had. There is an imagination about success and that imagination is challenged when I look at the lives of anyone that deeply inspires me. Most, most people who deeply inspire me existed in borderlands in the in-between. And the in-between isn't always cut and dry. It isn't always up and to the right. (laughs) Sometimes it's just much more messy. It's much more the the expectations are different. Um, And so anyway, when you're, as you were sharing about like, I've come to love the borderlands what came up for me or within me is like, I think I've existed in the borderlands for probably like, at least like vocationally, which is a whole nother conversation. (laughs) But I think vocationally I've been in that, in these borderlands for like six years, but I still have like an, maybe an expectation or a mindset of like working from a center. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And what you said just helped me reconcile a little bit about that. And and honestly, like your smile and joy and laughter in being where you are, it it I think it right sized in some way expectations for me to be able to understand like this is the borderland. This is not that land, nor is it that land. And that means certain things, like it just does. And that's the way it is. So for anyway, that that came up for me <laughs> when mm. you said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patty, I think when we're talking about a lot of what's come up in our conversation so far, to me, speaks to a colonial mindset. One of, I think, the most impactful, there's so much beauty and power and inspiration and imagination in your book. Uh, The thing that comes up for me right now is you describe the difference between a settler and an immigrant. And I think that that's really important for the way our conversation has gone so far. Because I think a lot of us, when you come from a center or you come from an evangelical or from a place of power, privilege, or opportunity, you might be thinking you're operating with an immigrant mindset but you are operating with a settler mindset. Mm-hmm. And even I, as I kind of shared what I shared, I think that's some of what's happening in my mind where it's like, it's just like, it's a mismatch of a, <laughs> of a expectation or operating system or worldview that's happening. There's like some, <laughs> there's some updating that's happening. <laughs> but would you share a little bit about the difference between an immigrant and a settler? Yeah, so that actually, so the understanding that I use actually comes um, from Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She wrote the book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Mm -hmm. um, which she actually says in her book that she was the musical Hamilton was such a revisionist, Uh such a revisionist piece of history that it actually provoked her to write this book. And so what is she saying? Because, wow. uh, yeah, America uh-huh. and Canada is t- too, because I'm in Canada, likes to think of themselves as a nation of immigrants, mm-hmm. um, which is really problematic because it erases indigenous people who were already here. It erases black people who did mm-hmm. not come freely. Like it suggests a freedom of movement um, that does, didn't exist for large portions of the population. But what Roxanne points out and what I talk about in the book is immigrants come to a place and then become part of the existing political system, right? Like that's the big thing that the far right is so worried about with Muslims coming and imposing Sharia law, that they're not going to be good. They're not going to be good immigrants. They're going to come and impose their own way of doing. And that's what settlers do. Settlers come to a place and impose their own way of Mm. their own way of living on the existing people. And that's what happened here. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, no, like the settlers, the people who came from Europe, they came here and settlement even, you know, people are now kind of pushing back on that as well, because it settlement sounds so nice. Right. Like I'm going to settle down. I'm going to get a house and maybe a farm, a couple of dogs, raise some kids. You know, (laughs) settlement sounds really nice and it kind of erases the violence of what happened. But what settler is. It's somebody who comes in and imposes a a new political system on the existing people. 
And that's what happened mm. here. They didn't come in and join with the Haudenosaunee and live, you know, with the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee made this agreement called the two row wampum agreement that would, that said, basically you live your way, we'll live our way and everything will be cool. And it wasn't about drawing a line in the sand or, you know, in the land and saying, you're going to live over here and we're going to live over there. It was those layered relationships, but we're not going to interfere with each other. You're mm -hmm. not going to say that we have to live one way. We're not going to say mm -hmm. that you have to live one way. We're just going to all live together in a way that allows everybody to flourish. You know, so that what was offered, that was not what happened, right? We know that, you know, we can look through history and we can see that's absolutely obviously not what happened. And so that's the difference between settler and immigrant. And so I could say that newcomers who came here, they're immigrating, they're joining in with the existing political system. But the political system is a settler colonial system because it's imposed on the existing, on the people who were here before. And then my kid, uh, my son, Sam, offered me another way of thinking of settler. Because settler, I also talk about in the book as a way of being. Right. And so I want people to think of another way of being in mm -hmm. this place. And so, and I think what I do, I mean, and, and the book isn't perfect. Right. And so I don't think I offer a very good, you know, I talk about returning to yourself. Um, but I don't think I, I don't think I articulate mm -hmm. that very clearly because it's still something that I'm, I'm think you know, I'm still something I'm working through. And so what my son offered mm -hmm. me in terms of thinking about returning to yourself or settler is the idea of a settler of being somebody who has disconnected themselves from their own history in order to align with the, with mm -hmm. the dominant system. And I think we see that I, that I mm, think is mm, a really helpful mm. way because that connects with the idea of returning to yourself. So instead of cutting yourself off from your history and becoming white or cutting yourself off from your history and becoming Canadian. And I think a lot of people have tried to do that with talking about being African-American or Irish-American. They're trying to stay connected to their history. But they get a lot of, a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. Can't we just be American? Can't we just be American? And that asks people to cut themselves off from mm -hmm. their history. Like, what's wrong with being Irish and American? What's mm -hmm. wrong with being mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Black and American? Like, why can't why can't we, mm -hmm. why do we have to cut ourselves off in order to be a cohesive people? We don't have to. It's like the sermon that provoked mm -hmm. this book in the first place, uh, which was a sermon about how we're all the same in Jesus and started off mm. by talking about how identity <laughs> politics is out of control and did not mean anything like what the Combahee River Collective meant when he was talking about identity politics. And just like how we're all the same in Jesus and we're not. I don't stop being an Ojibwe woman when I walk mm, into a church. Mm, mm. You don't stop being a black man when you walk into a church. Mm -hmm. People see us the way they see us. Mm -hmm. So maybe what matters isn't that I'm indigenous and you're black and somebody else is Irish and we're all in church together. Maybe what matters, maybe what Paul's talking about when he's saying that we're you know, there's no Jew nor Greek is those hierarchies don't matter. Nobody is more important because mm -hmm, they're that mm -hmm. thing. But that thing that they are brings mm -hmm. something important into this community. You know, so I think that's mm -hmm. what Sam is offering me in terms of, of this definition, which he didn't come up with himself. He got it from somebody else. Um, 
but returning to ourselves, <laughs> picking up our own bundles. What is your history? Who, like people will say, well, I don't know who my people are. Well, what are you mm. talking about? You know who your mom and dad are. You know who your grandparents are. Where did they come mm. from? What was important to your mm. grandparents? Like, what do you mean you don't know who your people are? Like, they're, like, and I'm not talking about people who were adopted and literally don't know who their people are. I'm talking about people that have big Christmas gatherings and they're saying, well, I don't know who are my, you know who your people are. You get together with them every Sunday. <laughs> like, those are your people. <laughs> yeah. Like, listen to their stories. Mm -hmm. What did, mm -hmm. you don't have to, you don't have to cut yourself off from that history. But that's a large, a large part of the American mm -hmm. story is cutting people off from their histories cutting people off from the ways that they had lived mm. and turning them into these little mobile nuclear families <laughs> that can be moved around the board. However, you know, Apple or Boeing needs them to move around. <laughs> yeah. You, what's fascinating me and what's really connecting dots for me about uh, your son and this, that way of thinking I think we've been doing that and we haven't maybe articulated mm -hmm. that. Maybe that's why your book is so important because unforgetting the the way that that idea serves us to say fully American or just to 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 me I think of it as disintegrating my identity. Mm -hmm. Uh instead of being an integrated where I can celebrate and be whole and and cherish each um part of my identity, take delight in these stories some of them are not all beautiful stories either but they make us who we are but if we feel like it serves us it's going to serve us we can be more successful if i drop off this identity if i start to behave this way then i can like you know whatever the goals are are and i i would imagine that at least for me the way that they always resonate is around finances well if i just behave this way then like finances will be different and I think some of that is true because this place is built on a certain way of doing things. But the invitation of your book and your son, when you say that indigenous call to unforget, the more context we get and we can see where it was distorted and disintegrated in the first place. And we can and and that the invitation to reimagine our future, then we can begin to see resources different, see neighborhood differently, see being differently, mm -hmm. and the goals become different. And so, when the goals are different, then the way I get there becomes different. So I just picked but, up, but the unforgetting part. Yeah, I was going to say. So I just picked up. I've never read Wretched of the Earth. I feel like a bad leftist. Fred's <laughs> been on. I figured it's time. It's time to. It's time. It's time. I think I'm, I'm emotionally ready for Fena. But what you're talking about, the reason I'm kind of jumping in <laughs> is in the foreword that was written. Um, Homi Babka talks about how our vision of the future is connected to the past. It's connected mm -hmm. to the his to our understanding of history, and so my call. Mm -hmm. that we unforget which again comes from Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz um where she talked because that's a remembering isn't isn't active enough right unforgetting requires a requires mm. excavating and digging and forgetting is a willful act whether it was a forgetting a collective forgetting that was imposed mm -hmm. on us or something like we have decided to cut ourselves off 
from, like you said, the unpleasant histories that we carry in our own families. But our vision of the future is connected to how we read our history, to how we understand our history. So if we cut ourselves off from things, mm -hmm. if we willfully forget things, then our vision of the future is going to be limited. And we've talked about Aurora Levens Morales, and she took, you know, these parts of our histories. Mm -hmm. if, we can, if we can transform them and acknowledge them, like how powerful and trans, like that gives us a powerful transformative vision for the future. If I, if the daughter of slave owners, like mm -hmm. the great granddaughter or great, whatever she is, you, you know, can become an abolitionist, that's pretty transformative. That's pretty mm -hmm. hopeful instead of this idea that we have to have always been good people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, this has not always been a good society. Yes. We can admit that without fear and move on to build something mm -hmm. better. Our vision of the mm -hmm. future is connected to our understanding of the past. So when I read that this morning, I was like, mm. heck yeah. <laughs> so I just, I even, and I love history. Yeah. I just, you know, like, I'm, I, I, just because it's, it tells us how to move forward. It tells us, it, it's not so much that, you mm -hmm. know, we're doomed to repeat it. It's, a, you know, it, it tells us how to move forward. It tells us how to get back up and try again. We keep trying again. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just so important. Mm -hmm. You know, what? what's coming up for me around that in this conversation is about when we look back at history in a lens of like unforgetting, I think that we can look back and see where people forgot. So even for me, when we talk about these people following God and then making this declaration and let's say that they are um, initiating genocide on another people. To me, I look back and say, oh, wow, they, they really missed it. They really forgot who they were in that moment. Like They really forgot where they came from. Mm -hmm. You can't do that to people if you could remember that that was done to your great-grandfather. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like how do you, and how that do you me, justify like, that's that? That's why all these Holocaust survivors right now are speaking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so. They're say yeah, they're I, saying I just, not in my name. Do not do this that, in my that. name. <laughs> That's you know, like you said. That's what they're saying yeah. right now. Like, do yeah. not do this in yeah. my name. Don't invoke me to to justify what you're doing. Exactly, and there's just this. Oof, there's there there can be a collective forgetting sometimes, mm -hmm. and that's why, I guess for me, that's why maybe people have such a problem with evangelical Christianity, because it has been many times an agent of collective forgetting. Mm -hmm. And trying to back to revisionist stuff where it's just like it's it's stripping many times. I have been in spaces where it is stripping people of identity. It is asking you to forget where you came from or it is calling us to forget an injustice right in our face. And that, and this becomes this, you know, one of these moments where a lot of people have had so much problems with the evangelical faith and the tradition, which is like, what are we doing right now? Like, why? This doesn't make sense. Like, this isn't who I've seen Jesus to be. I thought Jesus cherished these unique identities. Jesus was with and for the poor. Mm -hmm. So to me, that that kind of comes up around that. And all of that is about imagination and your ability to hold complex story, I guess. And for me, 
that takes me back to scripture. And one of the things that I loved about your the book, there's so much that the history was so helpful. There's so much beautiful imagery. When I say beautiful imagery, one of these really strong images in my mind is about um, some of the boarding schools and there was like an apple orchard mm. and they said that they planted an apple tree for every kid that went mm. missing. And you talked about, so that there's imagery there. And you said, when I think of that story, I think about the ways that the people who were experiencing that trauma might have seen life or being held by the tree or that the bodies maybe underneath the body or under, underneath the tree are creating nourishment for the tree. But then there's people eating the fruit of the tree. Mm-hmm. People who may have inflicted this violence. Mm-hmm. There's just a complexity of that story and that imagery in my mind right now. This is the way that you're telling these stories throughout history, throughout these, uh, in various histories, it is so meaningful. One of those stories that you talk about is the Anishinaabe creation story. And it was really meaningful to me. And there's really specific details that you kind of sprinkle throughout the book. And you, at the very end, near the end, I think page 166 or so, there's this, there's a portion about, um, this animal that sacrifices that strives for everyone and it's it's beautiful so i want to talk about creation stories creation narratives Mm -hmm. i want to read a narrative from scripture and just kind of get your imagination on that and some of the imagination that you've been exposed to around narrative all right before i get into that some context for this scripture um like patty said this scripture is written in the Babylonian exile or in that Babylonian um, imprisonment or uh, whatever we were going to call that uh, around 586 BCE. This is when Babylonia takes all of the well-educated, all of the worth keeping people and strips them out of Israel, takes them to their land to now be a part of the Babylonian kind of expanding kingdom. And they say, we need to write down our story. You mentioned this uh, passage in Kings in your book, but they write it down. So Genesis one becomes a retelling of a history that is really based around a Babylonian history, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And they're rewriting their story kind of alongside that to say, yeah, these things are kind of the same, but this God is different. But then Genesis 2 becomes much more of a Jewish or Hebrew storytelling about their creation, their origin story. So I'm going to read it. And Patty, I'd love to hear some of your perspective on it. This is Genesis 2, verses, start at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when Yahweh made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For Yahweh had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
And then Yahweh formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And now Yahweh planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man and there Yahweh put the man that God had formed. Yahweh made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters, the name of the first, Pishon, and winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The name of the second river is Gihon, its winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And Yahweh commanded him, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Yahweh said, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable companion. Now, Yahweh, God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man, to Adam, to see how he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable companion was found. And so Yahweh caused him to fall asleep. And while he was sleeping, took one of his ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then Yahweh made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And Adam said, now this is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. It's Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 through 25. Patty, what comes up for you in this reading in the context of our conversation, in the context of life for you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I didn't look at the screen where you, that you were reading from because I wanted to just kind of, just kind of hear it. You're such a beautiful narrator, by the way. You just, yeah, you're just such Mm. a, such a beautiful narrator. But I was thinking about, you know, it made me think of, you know, the streams coming up from the ground anyway, you know, the agency of the land. Because in the Anishinaabe creation story, like the, mm. what we take from, because it kind of follows a similar trajectory, is how each layer of creation is complete in itself. You, you know, like, mm. you, you know, mm-hmm. a, and relies on the things that came before and then it's complete. You know, like you've got the water, the you know, the land and the water wow. and it's complete. And then you've got the plants and the animals who need the land and the water, but then that is complete. And then you add man. And again, it's complete. So although the previous layers were complete and could get along without what came next, as each layer got added, 
right? Like creation needs us now. It didn't need us before. It existed fine without us, but it needs us now because we shape creation and creation is shaped by us. And so it's this reciprocal thing. And so when you were reading that and talked about the streams coming up, that made me think of the agency of the land in taking care of itself, you know, preparing it's preparing mm -hmm. itself, you know, to care for the shrubs and to care for the things that were coming. Yeah, so that, you know, so I was thinking about, I was thinking about the agency of the land and how we become part of creation and how those rivers connected to all of these different places that would then be mentioned later on in the story. It kind of sets us up for, it sets us up for what comes next. I hadn't really thought about that before, but as I was listening to you read about this river went here and this river went there, it's like foreshadowing these places that the people would go to. And, and, you know, and this is the gold is here mm. and the other thing is here. And it kind of set up kind of this majesty yeah. of creation that existed far beyond the garden. Like we think about, I don't even know how we thought about it. Like we thought about this perfect garden. I don't know. I don't know that we ever thought about what was outside the garden. That we always think about the garden as kind of mm. this beautiful, pristine place which makes me think of how we talk about wilderness, right? We've got, we've got pristine wilderness and then the places where people mm -hmm. are. Um, I don't know that we ever mm -hmm. really thought about, like in the churches that I've ever been part of, but we thought about the world outside the garden. And yet the creation story <laughs> gives us this beautiful, expansive world. This river goes here and this river goes there. And it invites us into this huge beautiful world that has agency where the streams come up from the earth to take care of the things that need taken care of um you, you know and then so in the in the anishinaabe story uh nana bojo is kind of central figure in this story in, you know in, in anishinaabe stories and the first thing that he does is he goes mm -hmm. for a walk he walks all over the world to see kind of who's there and just to explore this world and then when he comes back creator says okay here's a here's a dog go do go do it again and so he goes off and so that's what i was thinking about when you were talking about when you were reading about how god brought all the animals and we're going to find you a helper was when anna Bourgeau went off and he was naming things just kind of like adam did he went off and he was naming things and kind of and naming is relationship how do i see you how do we how do we engage with each other um because mm. that's what names are right a name is a mm -hmm. relationship you know, so what Adam is naming, naming mm. things, he's identifying relationship with those things. Um, Nana Bourgeau as well. He's creating relationship by giving names. And so when he's finished that creator sense of, okay, now go do that again with, go do that again with a partner, you know, with the wolf. But that wasn't Nana Bourgeau's final partner. He eventually found somebody called the firekeeper's daughter. And that's who he had relationship with not the wolf, although he made, you know, dogs, wolves, it, we have relationship with other than human, the other than human world. I have two dogs myself, mm -hmm. Adam. And mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, and then for Adam, and that's so often heard as a diminishing story that, you know, first there was man and then, you know, Eve was just made out of his rib and that kind of lessens her. But in the Jewish mm -hmm. text, Ha Adam is genderless. So man was not created first. Ha Adam is actually a genderless being that gets 
then gets divided into male and female. And so Adam, the man, is actually mm. created at the same time as Eve, the woman. And Eve, the woman, has all those memories of Ha'adam because she came from they're the same being separated into two. And that to me, so I heard this rabbi talking about the Adam and Eve story a few nights ago at, at a gathering for Palestine. And he says, when we talk about Adam and Eve, we're saying everybody is related. Not necessarily that it's a true mm. story that, because really, I mean, if you think it through too hard, it's kind of gross. Uh, you know? <laughs> But that we are all related, <laughs> that we're all connected to each other. And so no one group has any kind of historical superiority because they, they were here first. Nobody was here first. We are all related, mm -hmm. which is that's Nikanagana. You know, I am my relatives, all of them. Yes. Um, you know, which is also the name of yes. my foundation. And, and I thought that was a really, so, for, so separated into male and female we are all related and what have we done and then that breaking of the you know the boundary that god sets you know don't eat from that tree or you will surely die what that actually made me think of was when you know better do better because if you have the knowledge of good and evil mm. and you and if you didn't know any better then your level of accountability is low, right? Like if you didn't know any better, you're just doing the best that you can. You didn't know any better. Okay. You, you know, you didn't, you didn't know any better. Like that quote, um, I forget. Is it Maya Angelou said, you know, when we know better, we do better. I forget now exactly who said that. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the full quote had to, has to do with, I learned to do better. So it's more of a self-reflective and so when we know better, now we're accountable for the things that we know. We can't say, I didn't mean to cause that harm. And that is a death. Mm, mm, mm. That is a kind of death. That's a death to the person that I thought I was when I realized that I caused harm. Like, it was really fascinating to me that Jewish people don't read mm. this and hear the doctrine of original sin. They don't have a doctrine of original sin. <laughs> <laughs> That was something that Augustine brought yeah. into the church hundreds of years later. And so as you were reading that, that's what that made me think was now you're going to know better. If you do this thing, if you cross this line, if you open that book, if you have that conversation, if you initiate that relationship, you're going to know better and you're going to have responsibility to that person or to that idea or to that thing. And you're going to have to go out into the big world. You can't stay safe in your little evangelical church where you think you have, you know, where you think you have the cornerstone of truth and everybody else is wrong and you're beleaguered on all sides because mm. you're, you know, you're so persecuted. It's like, no, you have to go out into the <laughs> world. And the Bible is a, is a constant story and uh, of people being forced into the world. And that's, I don't know, Octavia Butler. This is my year of reading Octavia Butler. And that parable of the sower and parable of the mm. talents, that's what happens. Her community gets smashed and they get sent out into the world because we're not going to be powerful as long as we stay, just to kind of bring us full circle. We're not going to transform the world if we stay in the centers. 
if we're afraid of the borderlands, if we're afraid of the relationships mm. we're going to form in the borders. And so as I was listening to you talk about that, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the agency of the land. I was thinking about the similarity with Nana Bujo walking the world alone, then with his dog, and then meeting the firekeeper's daughter. And then the warning of of learning and building relationship and the responsibilities that those bring to us and the death of the person that we used to be. Mm-hmm. And, but instead of hearing it in a traumatizing, terrible way, I heard it as an invitation to something better, to something bigger, to, to those, the places where those rivers are going. Cause had Adam and Eve just stayed in the garden, they would have never have gone to those beautiful places. That world would have continued on without them. Mm. So yeah, mm. even just listening to you after this conversation we had, and then listening to you read it, I heard that story very differently. So thank you for that. That was really, that was really nice. I really appreciate oh. that. Thank you. Oh man, I, I really appreciate you reflecting back all of that i think (laughs) i I mean you know i have my seminary degree and and i read i read i'm a reader but i think this is like the first time i think i've ever imagined this scenario as a good thing like even i've like i've i've um i've read different books about this scenario that like could name intentions as good. Mm-hmm. But I think this goes back to forgetting and like where where is the center of your narrative, maybe your your imagination. And for me coming up in the faith tradition that I came up in, this story was always like this is a mistake. It came from that like original sin Augustine kind of thing. So even as my imagination moved from that center, it was still like, well, there can be good intentions, but it still seems like this is negative or this is like not following a rule. But I think when I believe that God is good and wise and loving, there is a, there's a different kind of scent out that I think I'm hearing. And it sounds beautiful i i don't i don't don't think i have that settled in my mind yet no i'm gonna have to keep coming back to this really beautiful to yeah i think um it feels really beautiful to think that almost like the um the warning isn't and again this is where like language and translation and and who tells us the story and what are their motives in telling us the story but man to think of god's warning in that moment to say i just think about when god is mature and loving and good when we're not projecting insecurity on god or vengeance on god i think about the way that a healthy parent or parent figure says like hey look we're gonna have this conversation about sex or about money or about whatever I'm telling you, once you've done this thing, there's no undoing it. There are certain ways that you see the world that like you just won't be able to see the world that same way anymore. Mm-hmm. 
I just see like the um, ugh, like a gentle, compassionate caution. Mm-hmm. When you eat this fruit, things will be different. And there's like an inherent nature of, I guess I'm still processing when that is the caution. It's not about like the way that relationship or death like that, the way that death is perceived in that is, is much different. But think you, you just won't be able to see things the same way. There will be a certain level of death, but there will also be a new kind of life. Mm-hmm. And I will be here to cover you. So I will still make, make way for you to exist without shame. I don't know. There, I'm, I'm still like wrestling with some of that, but I think this is the inaugural time of me thinking of that as like a really positive thing. But I think we come to for whatever crossroads. that means about me or yeah. where, the way, where I come from. Yeah, because we do. We come to crossroads yeah. in our lives, and we know that if we take that one more step, everything will be different. And there is no going back and you can't, you can't, you, you know, once you start seeing the thing, you're like woke, right? You know, people are like, oh, you know, you it just means being aware of racial inequity. So I get so annoyed when people use it in like irresponsible mm-hmm. ways or, you know, dem- you know, you know, derogatory ways, mm-hmm. because it is once you start, once mm-hmm. you start seeing that you can't stop seeing that you start seeing it everywhere. And that does change relationships. Mm-hmm. Because you start hearing things differently and you start experiencing things differently and things that you thought were yeah. okay, you realize are not okay. And now I have a responsibility to that. And life gets harder. You know, life got harder for them after they left Eden. <laughs> life got harder. And mm. life does get harder mm-hmm. when you start recognizing the injustice in the world because you can't, you can't look away from it now. And maybe you wish you could like maybe like the guy in the matrix you know get you know plug me back in i don't want to remember any of this you know we oh, you know you wish you could i was thinking the same thing <laughs> you know plug me back in i was thinking the same thing i, I literally wrote in my notes <laughs> matrix such a, yeah. the second and third films were not yeah. that good but the first one was amazing um yeah so yeah. just as you were talking i had not so these are thoughts that I am also now trying to figure out <laughs> because I, as you were reading and as I was thinking in the context of everything we had talked about before that shifted how I heard this story. And that's what mm-hmm. I'm really interested mm-hmm. in is shifting the ways that we hear the stories to bring us ultimately to a better and more beautiful place. Like it's a simple, like we're cleaning out a guest room right now and mm-hmm. you know what cleaning is like. The first thing that happens is you wind up making a bigger mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes. once, yeah, so you yeah, make yeah. the bigger mess mm-hmm. and then you wind up with a clean guest room. You know, so this is like this. We make a bigger mess mm-hmm. when we start seeing everything that, and then we feel bad. We do feel shame. When I realized that as a social worker, I was not one of the good guys. I felt tremendous shame but we don't wallow in it, mm. right? Maybe we wallow mm. for a little while um, until we get used to it, mm-hmm. but then we build from it and we build something much better than what we had before. But mm-hmm. yeah, those first steps are scary mm-hmm. and people will warn us not mm-hmm. to take them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Man. Patty, I think my uh <laughs> my mind right now is like uh there's so much invitation there. You know, I think when you talked about cleaning out a room, to me that made it made me think about faith and spirituality for people who are like deconstructing, quote unquote. Um and the one thing that I thought about was, you know, sometimes you might have an you have an imagination for what the room can look like, but you're not sure. So you start pulling boxes out, you start rearranging things. But sometimes it is in the act of it. And to me, that feels like the faith part of it where you pull the thing out and you start to pull things apart. And it is as you are taking it apart that you start to gain imagination for how it can be replaced in the room or how the room can exist without it in there. And I think that that's something that comes up for me. And I think that it can be helpful that you can't see what you haven't seen. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have imagination for something that you've never heard before. This is why it's important to unforget. This is why our ancestors are important. That's why it's important to have people helping us see what we can't see because we simply cannot do it alone or in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And that feels like the invitation of your book and your presence with us today is that that sense of like you can't you can't unforget what you didn't know you never knew mm -hmm. but once you see it once you hear it then you like you say you're responsible then you're invited into a new way of being so how do i act now that i know this how do i hold this thing differently sometimes that can be overwhelming but i i just think about what's the what's the next faithful step for you how can you be responsible with the very thing in front of you? However minuscule or granular you need that to be to find peace. I know sometimes for me, I just get overwhelmed trying to manage next Thursday. And it's like, <laughs> today is this day. And, and this is this hour with these things to do. Mm -hmm. So try to just narrow that focus in. But um, but I, I, the, most, the thing that came up for me that, that I want to reiterate is, you don't have to have a, a vision for who you can be without whatever harmful beliefs that you you're you're working through. Just do the next faithful thing and trust that you will gain imagination as you expose yourself to more voices like Patty's and more people and more stories like our Anishinaabe stories that can help us to see things and imagine kinship and our neighbors and our sisters and brothers differently uh i think that that's so important mm -hmm. it, it really is especially i mean you know the willingness to kind of have an idea of where i want to go but maybe maybe it doesn't have to actually look like that when i get there we'll find mm. out you know we'll find we'll build the road by walking it that's um antonio mercado a spanish yeah. poet we build the yeah. road we, we build the path by walking Mm. Yeah. And that's difficult for again, if you grew up in a in a in a faith tradition or a culture that said like you this is the road. Yeah. Or you must have all the answers. It is a tremendous act of it's an act of faith. Yeah. It's an act yeah. of faith. Then it's a tremendous act of faith and surrender. Yeah. Yeah. To to allow different things to inform how I move. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Patty. I am so, so gracious for your time 
so grateful that you would share your imagination with us in this time. But your book is phenomenal. Thank you. I think there, the ways that you tie different stories together, different stories of different peoples, and specifically help us to understand what's been happening in colonization, in kind of a settler way of going about things and eradicating and erasing and making us forget, uh, it, it, but then inviting us to imagine, so how do we do this now? And what can this look like? And these questions that you guide us to. I really appreciate your book and your presence today. Are there ways that you uh, that are most helpful for people to connect with you? Uh, probably the easiest thing for people to do is my website, um, which is donish.ca. Mm -hmm. So D-A-A-N-I-S.ca. Um, everything is there, like links to my Substack podcasts, socials. Um, those, those are all there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Donish, it just means daughter. Um, in, oh. in, uh, Anishinaabe Moan, it means daughter. Uh, and there's a whole long story about that, that I won't tell you, uh, I won't bore you with, but, uh, yeah, it just, that's <laughs> so D A A N I S dot C A people can get to, uh, the, the foundation from there, which is also called pay your rent dot C A because the idea came mm -hmm. from, people who just felt so bad about being mm -hmm. on stolen land. And I said, well, you, you feel so bad. Why don't you pay some rent? And then I thought, that's actually a good idea. <laughs> so yes. I created the Patreon and now it's a foundation. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, I love that. Pay your rent. And we, we are mostly in Canada, but we do support people in the U S as well. And we do take American money. <laughs> so yeah, but that's, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the easiest way to that's find incredible. me is, uh, is the website, ganish.ca. We will, we will definitely make sure we put that in the notes. I am so grateful, Patty, for who you are and how you show us what it looks like to walk our path, your imagination and your investment in the world, um, your invitation to us to unforget, the active work of unforgetting and the active work of reimagining future and working towards that future. Um, I, I'm so grateful for you, my sister. For those of you who are listening, uh, may you be invited into that work of unforgetting. I wonder what kind of beliefs you may need to question or call into question. But I think what comes up for me most for you, the listener, is what if the, the spaces where you felt most um, rejected or sent away from God were these very invitations to maturity and exploration where God was with you and you were loved. So take that, uh, think about that, and more importantly, let's get to danis.ca and follow and support Patty. Thank you, Patty. Is